This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong Whaley. As part of our 9-11 at 20 series, we talk with Ryan Powell, who grew up in the Shenandoah Valley about 30 minutes north of Harrisonburg. Ryan hails from a family with four generations of members who graduated from JMU. In 2007, Ryan received his BS in sociology from James Madison. He then commissioned through the ROTC as an ordnance officer with the 299th Brigade Support Battalion. He deployed to Iraq twice in 2008 and 2010, both times to Baghdad. In 2018, Ryan received an MBA from Virginia Commonwealth University. We hope you enjoy listening to Ryan's story and invite you to engage with us on social media at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Ryan Powell, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military. And this next question actually comes from Colonel Swain, who asked whether or not you realized what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU. I joined the military because I, for a long time, I knew that I wanted to serve my country. I had this, I don't know, I don't know, it's not probably, doesn't go along with a lot of thought process or a lot of, a lot of young people, but I always felt like, hey, you should serve your country in one way or another. And for a long time, I thought, you know, everybody should serve in the military. Then after being in the military, I was like, no, the military is definitely not for everybody. Um, and so, um, I really, but I still feel like you should give back and serve in one way or another. And I, and I've I've kind of amended or changed that viewpoint where I think, you know, some sort of volunteerism, Peace Corps, Teach for America, America, any, any of these options that are out there. And, and, uh, mine just happened to be, well, I wanted to serve in the military. Um, and it, it kind of came, you know, I I would say that's, you know, what happened in September 11th was a big sort of push. to, to that, to go that route. Um, but that's kind of always been my, my philosophy on, on serving. Um, and then did I really know what I was getting into? Probably say like 50%. (laughs) Um, so I, I had a good idea and, and luckily, uh, ROTC has a, has a, uh, uh, they, if you if you join later in the program, they have a. I'm, I'm assuming they still do. They have this leadership or leadership training course down in Fort Knox, and it's for the for the cadets that um, don't join as as freshmen. You get to it's sort of a catch up course, um, but it's time you get you get time with drill sergeants. You get you know you get it's a it's a it's a pretty condensed course, and like I think it's like six or eight weeks. Um, but I learned a lot, and so that kind of gave you a crash course of what you're getting into, um, what to expect. Um, as far as what the, the sort of the step-by-step process of being in the military. Now, afterwards, like what, what true army was like, no, I had no idea. And I'm, I'm not quite sure many cadets do. Um, you know, it's all, it's sort of an eye-opening experience when you get in, you leave ROTC or even the guys that are, or guys and, and, and gals that are up in the academy. Um, you, it, it really is definitely an eye-opening experience when you join, um, now, for the bet, I, I, I truly, you know, appreciated and and enjoyed, you know, my time. But it was definitely, like I said, I kind of do, but not not quite. 
Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what do you remember about how that day changed you? Oh, yeah. So I think a lot of us probably do. So I was in I was in high school um, and I was sitting in a math class um, and our principal came over um, in a loudspeaker and said, hey, there's been an attack on the World Trade Center. Um, You know, feel free to pause your your learning and, you know, turn on the news. Um, And I can't remember if the class didn't have a TV um, or I, I definitely remember that that specific math teacher we had to continue the lecture because <laughs> the SOLs in Virginia were very strict and you have to keep going and, and, you know, you have, you can't really get off pace. And I do remember like we had to keep learning we had to keep, you know, proceeding with that lesson. And it wasn't until it was like kind of close to the end of the period. And I do remember going to my locker and then going into my English class and sitting down and my English teacher having it on. And about that time, I really think it was either, and this is where I, it gets a little fuzzy. I'm wondering if it was a like a like a like a flashback from the news where they showed one of the planes hitting the building, or if I watched like the second plane hitting the building, something like that. Um, and we were just, you know, it was complete shock. And of course, after certainly after that, I think, or not long after that, you know, they let everybody out from school. Um, but yeah, I was in I was in a math class, and then I went to an English class, and I saw it. And I was like, "Wow, this is this is crazy. This is um, kind of unreal." Can you share about your experiences serving in the global war on terror, and how did your experiences being deployed impact you? So I was stationed in Fort Riley. Um, it's kind of funny thing about the funny thing about the army. So um, I was pretty excited at first because I was going to um, a brigade that was in Germany. Oh, sweet. I can find, you know, I get a cool duty station, you know, you're young, fresh out of college. And then you get those orders. Um, like, Oh, the, the, the brigade is actually, uh, being redeployed and it's going to be out of like Fort Riley, Kansas. And I I was like, Kansas, are you kidding me? Kansas. So I went out to Fort Riley and, uh, very pretty, very pretty, but yeah, um, it is, it is out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and they, and the reason for that was the, the brigade was being stood up in, in Port Riley because they were prepping. Um, it was right at, like right at the tail end of the, the surge. I don't know if you remember that, but, um, it was the, um, it was very, very, you know, it was well publicized. And so they said, Hey, look, we got all these brigades that are getting slotted and we're, we're pushing all these troops over. Um, and this one's, you know, getting stood up and it's going, it's going to Iraq. Um, and I, Got there and I was there for probably, they kept saying like, I got there in like January or February and they kept saying like, Hey, we're getting ready to go. We're getting ready to go. When we finally ended up deploying, um, in September, October, somewhere in there. So it was a little, a little while. Um, and we went right in the middle of Baghdad. Um, they, uh, the, a lot of the, um, the, the support units were based out of, out of Camp Liberty uh, because that's where a, a lot of the, you know, if you're looking at supply chain, it was an easier way to, to, uh, to prep for, for, you know, sort of sustainment operations. But the unit that we were attached to um, the infantry, it was a, it was a combined arms battalion of infantry and armor units. They were scattered around and forward operating bases around the Northwest sector of, of Baghdad. Um, and the base of operations was FOB, Fob, they called it Fob Justice because it's actually where they um, they executed Saddam. 
after they uh, after they went through um, after the Iraqis went through that process. And so, um, yeah, for for that whole year, it was a lot of um, we like I said, it was at the tail end of the surge. We replaced a lot of of units that had been there right in the middle of the surge. Um, so it was this transition from getting a little kind of a little hairy to being pretty pretty calm aside from a few instances here and there um i mean it was relative the attacks the attacks on at least u.s troops were um just mainly ieds you know roadside you know not a lot of small arms engagements or anything like that in the middle of the city so it was a lot of um they called it winning the hearts and minds, you know, building neighborhoods, you know, you know, you know, getting a lot of the, the schools and everything set back up and, um, and, and making sure, try to get people jobs and hospitals and stuff like that. Um, and then, um, I came back, uh, I, we, we were there for a year, came back and they said, um, you know, regroup for a little bit prep and then we're going we're gonna to go again the next year. Um, and I, I said, well, okay, well, uh, maybe, maybe it'll be a little bit different. And we eventually during the, during that sort of redeployment training, we, um, we got orders. Hey, we're going back to Iraq. I said, okay, well maybe, okay. You know, it's not Afghanistan. I was looking to see at least something different. Maybe it'll be, uh, maybe it'll be a little bit of a change. <laughs> Found out we went back to the very same spot in Iraq, <laughs> right in the middle of Baghdad. <laughs> um, which it was uh, actually a little bit, um, I'd say a little bit more unstable because we had transitioned a lot of the security. We, you know, the U.S. forces transitioned a lot of the security operations over to the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police force, which at the time, you know, I can't speak to how it is now. It was, it was pretty corrupt um, and or lax, you know, they just, you know, this sort of vigilance and, and, and due diligence that, you know, you do as that we're trained to do. They just, they just didn't have that mindset. Um, and so, you know, we didn't have a lot of security patrols going out and there was just a lot more rocket mortar attacks. I mean, it was, you know, multiple times during the day and you're sitting there trying to train sustainment, you know, sustainment, train Iraqi, the Iraqi army and, and sustainment operations on how to, you know, conduct supply chain, it was a lot different. Um, and then combine that with getting mortared and rocketed and you can't, you, you know, the, the, I mean, our, our quick response force could go out and only do so much at that time. A lot of it was, um, you know, they had to be allowed by the Iraqi security forces to go out and, and, you know, respond. And by that time, all the insurgents had, had disappeared from wherever they had, had initiated, uh, contact from. So it was a little bit of a different scenario it was, you know, you, you felt like, Hey, we're not, you know, our guys aren't out there. We're not doing regular patrols, but we're stuck behind these walls and, and, you know, training and, and, and helping support, but we can't really do anything. And so it was a little bit of a different scenario, um, than the, than the first time. Um, and so, yeah, I came back from the, that second deployment and, um, I had gotten married and, and, you know, my wife, Brooke and I were kind of talking, like, do I stay in? Like, the, I got a I got a um, an email from my my uh, branch officer and he was like hey you know you're you're overdue for your captain's career course you need to come back to school which was in Virginia and I was like well you know I've kind of been deploying a lot I can't I can't really come back to school and um, and uh, and he said um, he said uh, um, he I, I said okay that I mean that that's kind of cool but can I um, 
can I at least get like a duty station that is like pretty nice, like to go somewhere decent? He said, well, right now all of my slots I have to fill are are units going to Afghanistan. And at that point I've been in five years. I was like, uh, do I want to do that? Like I, I, I want to stay married, (laughs) you know, like we want to have a family. So I I ended up, I ended up getting out and I joined the the guard, uh, Virginia national guard for a little while. And then, and then ultimately I just, I just uh, went on to inactive or ready reserve or whatever they call it now. But um, yeah, so that's kind of what, uh, what my experience was like deployed, like what it was like during the global war on terror. And um, yeah, definitely, definitely an eye opening experience to see, you know, just what it's like in a, in a city that had gone through a lot of conflict um, and had been, you know, really torn apart by conflict. Um, And there were, you know, you think, I think back on, on what it was like as we were going through the patrols, um, you know, some parts of, of, of Baghdad were, were just like any other city, right. You know, like, uh, any, in, in the world, like they're nice houses, cars, you know, people going to work, but then, you know, you could, you could go around the, you know, maybe, maybe half a mile in one direction or another. And, um, there's people living in, in mud huts. You know, and it was in, in trash piles and stuff. It was really kind of an interesting dynamic um, that you saw in, in like their capital city. And it was it showed it was like this is, you know, as much as as much as we're doing to try and improve this. Um, this environment, we can only do so much as a military force. You, you mentioned that in your first deployment, the focus was really on the hearts and minds approach. Um did you think that was effective, particularly given that you saw an increase in conflict when you were back on your second deployment? Yeah, yeah it was. Mm, that's a tough one. Um, I, 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 I do think that is that it was um, because, you know, you know, we there there are a lot of people there, just like any other any other place. Like they just they want a safe place to raise their family. Right. And like, go, go to work and, 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 and go to school. And, you know, like it, it, there's a little bit of a different mindset with, with then, you know, than how Americans typically approach things. Um, and, and that's to be expected, but they still want a safe atmosphere to, you know, to, to, to live and, and work and raise their families. Um, and so I think for a lot from, at least from what I saw, you know, it really did help and went a long ways. The the uptick in insurgents, a lot of them were not like the people that we're interacting with, right? Like they they were brought in from other you know nation states that were funded uh, specifically to cause and 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 create strife and issues. And you know, I just remember a lot of times like there'd be there'd be uh, like a roadside attack, for instance, and this is the crazy thing about this. Like our, our patrol would go through um, and, and they, you know, we have, we were considered, I mean, you could consider it. They, they knew what the infantry and armor units were, right? Like my, my patrols had all of our sustainment operas. They have like fuel tankers and, and trucks full of food and all this stuff. So they knew exactly who, who they wanted to go after. Um, and we had ways to prevent, you know, the signal, signal blocking technology. And so, but then a, a, a bomb or, or something like that would, would go off and strike a convoy. 
And, you know, the stuff that they would pull out of there would not would be from, you know, made in specific other countries. And you could read it right on the side. Like it was it was stuff that was being brought in by people from other other countries around the area funded by other nations. And, you know, that's the unfortunate part about it is like a lot of people that we were interacting with and helping build up these neighborhoods were not the ones that were causing these issues. And it was really, you know, unfortunate for those um individuals and so i kind of say like hey yeah we were really helping the certain neighborhoods out and, and and i think they truly did appreciate it um it was just some bad actors that kept that were brought in um from outside um and that's typically i think what you probably still see in a lot of the areas and not as plugged in as obviously i used to be but I, th- I still think that's probably how it goes i wonder if you can talk about from your perspective what have been the consequences of U.S. military operations in Iraq, both for domestic and foreign policy. Yeah, so I think they're 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 at least, and I still think it's probably still out there. When we were in in you know our operations, we we would deploy, and there was this mindset that we were then to become nation builders, right? We went in, and 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 honestly, the, the trouble with it is that. The military, it's not designed for that, right? So you're asking people that you train to do certain things to be trained to do another way or do things another way. And I think that's probably the biggest, um, the biggest negative that I've seen is that, is that we went in there with a, a specific objective in mind and then said, hey, well, we then now need to, to, to rebuild this nation, you know, in one way or another to then detract on the, the terrorist element. Um, I don't know if that has really been successful, to be completely honest. Um, I, I think there was some, you know, so, some success, but I think that's the biggest issue that I've seen is that we then became somehow this this idea that hey, we need to rebuild this nation or these nations, and and um, with our mindset and and you know as to what it should look like without a lot of with a couple of these you know countries really leading the charge. Um, and I just, I think that's not, you know, you know, what it's led to is now some of these young troops, um, that are in, uh, you know, in the military have never seen a military that's not been in a war. Um, and that's really kind of crazy to think about, you know, they have, oh, they have been their entire life and their entire military career has always been in a conflict or a war. Um, and whether it's stated or not, and that's one one of the unfortunate things about it, you know, there's not a time to 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 re like regroup, train, you know, and and I think probably military leaders are now looking at that, saying, hey, look, we need to a lot of these you know fundamental skill sets that we had prior to this un you know this unconventional warfare, we lost some of that, and we need to retrain our troops in that. Um, and so, you know, that in combination with this idea that we should rebuild these nations, um, which, which prolonged these war efforts has really, I think, done a kind of a, a disservice to the, to, the, to the young troops that go in there. You know, they're always, always deploying, always in a war. So that's my, I think, my biggest thing that I, as I reflect back on it, kind of what I've seen. I, I wonder, you know, even what you're saying now is not something that is really covered deeply by the media, mainstream media narratives. I wonder if there's anything else that you think that the mainstream media narratives have missed about the the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Well, you know, if you think about it, like it really it puts a tax on and, a, and it's a readiness issue because we have a vol, all volunteer force. Right. And, and I, I think the numbers are still probably the same where a, it's like less than one percent of the population has ever been in the military and is currently serving. And so if you have that small of a percentage of people that are per, like just continuously fighting wars for over 20 years now, it does become a readiness issue. These, there's burnout, like just like any corporate job. I mean, you, but the stress level is completely different. And so then it becomes this thing of like, well, how do you get your people and your talent to stay? Because I know that they've had this, especially when I was in, a lot of, you know, a lot of your really young, bright officers, I can't speak on the non-commissioned officer side um, or the enlisted side, but um, on, the, on the commissioned officer side, you know, a lot of these young, bright officers are just leaving in droves after their four and five year commitments are done because, you know, they're all, they know like, hey, if I stay in, I am always going to be in a, in a conflict zone, no matter what unit I go to, because we're always going to be in a war. Um, and so then you're losing, you know, a lot of your bright young talent that you need <laughs> to stay in, especially when your numbers are, are of, of, of your population of your, you know, overall population are so low for who volunteers. Um, and then, it be, you know, again, it goes back to the, like I said, readiness where you have all these people that are just leaving because they know you're always, you're always going to be in a conflict. Um, and it's really unfortunate because. We can't ever have a, a, a military force that is just there to train to be ready, um, because you know, these, you know these these young troops and soldiers know like they are going to always have to go to and they're going to be deployed. Um, and I think you, you know, a lot of times that's missed in the narrative because they're rightfully so. Like you, you are praising and, and, and admiring the people that serve. Uh, I think the other the other side of it is like we should say we, another side of the story should be. Hey, how do we keep these, you know, these bright young people in the military? Um, and, and part of that is, hey, how do we get out of this, this, this mess that's over there that has just prolonged this continuous war? Um, that's and I think that uh, that's been, I think, a, a narrative that you don't really ever hear. Right. It's it's yeah, it's OK to to then to to praise the people serving. But, hey, let's think about why and where they're serving for how long they're serving like this is. Or like not serving, but like, but how they're deployed and how long they're deployed and what we can expect and what can reasonably expect from a person um, that's just be being continuously put in a conflict zone and, and a hazard zone. Um, it really does. It uh, it does draw, you know, and then, like I said, it, it, it's a readiness issue. So we are we're talking now in October and. Um, President Biden, um, you know, announced earlier this year troop withdrawal from Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but there are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities um, and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? Broadly speaking, from Afghanistan, you know, I wasn't there, but I can say that as a, if you look at the history that comes with military conflicts in Afghanistan, it probably would have been uh, beneficial for us to go in um, once once we we captured Bin Laden. I think it probably would have been prudent for us to say, "Hey, mission accomplished." Right um, now, would it have been? Um, could could you just you know, drop drop everything and leave? No, because I think what, what you just saw 
um, with with dropping everything and a known sort of dropping everything and leaving um, allowed for um, like this the the, the abrupt um, how do I say this uh, takeover from from the Taliban. Uh, I think there probably could have been different strategies for for how we withdraw, but that could have been also prevented if you had said, "Hey, look, our main mission here is strictly a, a you know Osama bin Laden." You know, we're not going to rebuild this whole country. And look at the way that, you know, the history for, for all of the conflicts that have come about in this country. Um, it's just not um, something that we could realistically think that that we could, you know, change from half of a, you know, a, the global way. Um, I think, you know, Iraq is a little bit of a different story because they fundamentally they have, you know, a different population, you know, they, they a lot of the, the population is a little bit more educated, um, but they also have the infrastructure. And then strategically, if you look in the region, it would make sense for, um, uh, you know, security operations to be sort of centered in Iraq. Uh, the, the problem though is, and I still think this, um, somehow it felt like we missed um, like either strengthening the, the, like the way the country or rebuilding the country, whatever you want to call it, with by by the the you know native population taking the lead in that. Um, I think it took a while for for us to realize like, hey, we can't we can't do this. Like this isn't like our role. They have to be able to um, to be able to push this themselves. And um, and I think you probably see that a little bit more in Iraq in terms of like businesses and, and the sort of oil infrastructure that they've got going on there. And, um, but, you know, it, it really is tough when you still have um, a security force, uh, you know, that is led by, by their population that just doesn't have the same, you know, vigilance that ours did and allows those, you know, nation state actors to come in and continue to disrupt, you know, what they're trying to rebuild. Um, and, and that's really the unfortunate part about, um, I think some of these, these countries over there. Um, and, you know, and I think um, I, I see us being in Iraq for the long haul for, for a lot of those reasons, right? It, it, it offers a, a, a more of a, a stable place. Um, and, and strategically also, it is a place that uh, um, we could, you know, you could build a, a security or a, a military operation from. But I still think you could, you know, you could position yourself so it's not in a in a, a war. <laughs> like I know they say, hey, we've de- we've we've withdrawn our, our our troops. Like we're not there as a military. But you, you, I mean, we know they're still there, right? <laughs> they're still there. And so I, I I definitely think that we were there for the long haul. Um, but you know, I don't know. And, and again, I ha- I haven't been plugged in in a while, but I have to think that the State Department has plenty of operations going on to try to build that, that sort of civil affairs network and, and build that, that trust that we've got going on. But yeah, I really think that man, we're, we're in Iraq now for a long time. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. We know that democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. Um, thank you for making sacrifices to serve um, through your deployments in Iraq. Um, and in your broader military service in the Virginia National Guard and the reserves. Um, you know, we, we do want to recognize that 
sacrifice tends to be an unequal burden. And you've really highlighted that today um, in your story as we, as you've mentioned the, the ways in which, you know, troops now are, have only known conflict. So we wanted to thank you for, for highlighting that, especially what advice do you have for individuals who've not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening and reimagining democracy? Yeah. So I thought about this for, for a while. And I think it goes back to, um, if I, if I look what, what was a unifier from, from September 11th, it, again, it was a tragic event, but it did bring a lot of people together. Right. And I think that there are things out there that, that would help strengthen democracy that are, that are unifiers. One of them, if you can, can kind of see is, you know, being, a, being a, in the military or a veteran of some sort really is a unifier for the people that have served. Um, the, the other side, regardless of like what your thought process is or where you're from or whatever, it's, it's something, hey, hey, you, you know, we both serve. Like you can, it's a shared story. Um, and, and it can kind of like help, I don't want to say like, like close any divides, right? And so the, the other thing is, it goes back to kind of what I, what I, what I talked about in, in serving in some, some way or another, right? Um, having, regardless of if you're not serving the military, but you are giving back um, in, in a volunteer effort of, of some sort, or like I said, like, there are a lot of community engagements, a lot of ways that you can give back and, and volunteer and get close to other people that, hey... We're, we might not think alike all the time or, or, or truly we are not, we are from different places and we are different. We have different skin colors and we think differently, but Hey, we are, we are doing something that is for the greater good for our local community and, and so forth. That is always going to be a unifier. And I think that's really kind of, it's, it's gotten lost, I think. Um, and again, I don't, I don't think you have to be in the military to have this mindset. Like there are ways that you can do this, and then truly appreciate others that are different from you by, by doing these things and giving back and, and serving in one way or another. And I think that really does go a long way to help, you know, if I'm, t- if I'm thinking about preserving democracy, it really is truly appreciating people that have different viewpoints and, and come from different backgrounds and think differently because we appreciate that. And that's how we continue to make progress. And by doing that, hey, what do we have? What do we have out there that will unify us? Well, here are these things that are out there in the community in our country that that can bring us together in one way or another, and that can lead us to to start to to bring these conversations back to something that doesn't get so heated, and and things that we're, we can start to share ideas and um, and we know that we we've done you know we've we've served together in one way or another, and we've you know contributed to this common purpose. Um, and then let's let's bridge that. Let's bridge that divide and start talking about ways that we can help, um, you know, make our country better and continue to push. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.